Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes, and on today's episode, Nordstrom's VP of Men's Fashion, Sam Lobin, discussed today's men's fashion customer, why retailers are no longer gatekeepers, and the new brand retail relationship. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Sam. Hi. So thanks for coming in. Do you want to talk a little bit first off? How do you get to a place where you're the VP of Men's Fashion at Nordstrom? How did you get your start? Uh, well, firstly, thanks very much for having me. Um I started on the shop floor of a men's boutique um, in St. Albans, which is where I'm from. It's 20 miles north of central London. Mm -hmm. Um, I started on the shop floor when I was just under 16, uh, selling kind of men's uh, designer sportswear, essentially. Um, And then I started working at Selfridges on the shop floor, uh, I think when I was 18 or 19. Um, So I've kind of been doing like some form of retail since mm. pretty early well, age. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, I, on my induction or orientation um, of joining Selfridges, I met a chap who was the uh, men's merchandiser or men's sort of buy planner uh, for the Selfridges men's business. Mm. And I essentially sort of petitioned him to give me like a little internship nice. um i rang him every day for three weeks at nine and five thirty, and eventually yeah yeah on, on the the third friday at, at five thirty, he said what are you doing next week uh, and i said oh it's like easter holidays i was at college <laughs> at the time um uh and i went and, and kind of did some admin for them and, and checked order sheets and, and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and then off the back of that which I did for two weeks, they gave me a job. So I started in the buying office of Selfridges when I was 19. And what year was that? Uh, That was 2006. So pretty different time for for multi-brand retailer, for department stores. How would you describe like the the mood around that that job at the time? Uh, I guess... There's been you're you're completely right. There's been a lot of evolution um, in in retail, in the way that people, I think, consume fashion but right. also in how they learn about fashion you know I, re- I still remember like almost the first time we saw um tommy ton's original photo blog uh, jack and jill yeah um and i remember that sort of coming out and i remember like the early days i don't know necessarily if it was the early days for for these businesses specifically but definitely the early days of us kind of discovering things like hype beast and heist mm-hmm. which i think all started around that kind of time maybe a little earlier and and we just kind of discovered it right um but there was definitely a shift in people kind of finding out about trend uh digitally mm-hmm. um through you know the internet um and of course back then online shopping uh, at least for fashion um existed in the women's space because uh, businesses like netta porter had started in 2000 but in men's you know, it didn't really, especially not in, in 2006. There were people selling things on like sneaker forums mm. and stuff like that, but it didn't exist uh, anywhere near like it it does um, today. Right. Um, and then of course, after Selfridges, um, I joined the Mr. Porter 
uh, team, that business joined, uh, launched in February 2011 and I joined in, in June 2011. Uh, oh, wow, so, so right at the beginning. Yeah, so kind of definitely between like the Selfridges department store um, experience and then that whole Mr. Porter mm-hmm. uh, experience and seeing the shifting landscape. I guess there's there's a lot of differences um, from back then in, in how people um, were looking for fashion, I guess the speed at which things were happening. There's also a lot of similarities as well, as in people back then were still looking for an experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was definitely something that um, Selfridges uh, back then believed a lot in and, and definitely still does. If you've been to their department store in London um, recently, there's definitely a, a lot going on in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of in-store physical activation, inspiring, inspiring and exciting um, a customer, um, I think that's as important then as it is today. Um, I think just the speed at which things are, are shifting and definitely the speed at which a customer's finding out about newer ideas, that's right. really the big change. Right. So on the men's front and how that's shifted from you know, traditional shopping to online shopping, why would you like? Why did it take Mr. Porter 11 years to launch a men's site? Like being there at the beginning, were you like, okay, this is kind of a turning point for the way that men are going to shop online? as you know everything else was was kind of coming to be more mainstream in terms of Instagram and personal blogs and basically like the crush of online fashion content yeah i guess it was a um to one degree or another a sort of perfect storm of everyone's talking at the moment about um the heightened um like men's in itself has got a much of sort of heightened expression mm-hmm. and everyone's kind of in on the men's conversation in terms of it sort of like booming at the moment. Um, I've just come back from Paris Fashion Week and mm-hmm. that was definitely like a lot of conversation yeah. during the week. I guess I've always been in men's, um, at least in my own career. And because I sort of started selling men's before I was six, like 15 and three quarters on a shop floor from right. my own personal perspective, sort right. of always been it's, in. Right, it's what you've known. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Netaporte business um, had been going and building steam. Um, and for them specifically, it's a slightly sort of odd question for me to ask, because I think for them specifically, it was a business, it was just a business situation. Mm-hmm. Like, um, why not reach the other half of the population? <laughs> yeah, to one degree or another. Um, you know, I think they did it because like any sort of business, there's only so much you can focus on at once. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost like coming at that question from a slightly different angle it was like you kind of in 2011 or around that time you had uh, i guess the the perfect storm of instagram sort of really going sort of mainstream from a fashion perspective because mm-hmm. it exists around that time yeah um and people very quickly used it as a medium to share like fashion imagery right like mm-hmm. i feel like at least from my perspective it was one of the things that really blew up um, Instagram. I'm sure there's a lot of others from a lot of other industries, but um, it just worked so well as a fashion medium. Right. Um, you then had uh, digital blogs um, covering at least men's style like never before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had a lot of interesting things going on from a men's designer perspective. Um, you couple that with um, sort of digital retailers really getting into the men's space. Um, like the launch of Mr. Porter or kind of Essence around that time was starting to build up. Yeah. There was a, a British retailer called Oki Nee that a few years prior had kind of gone seriously into men's fashion. Um, a little after there was a store called LNCC. So there was a lot of 
sort of digital um, across retail, marketing, editorial content. Mm-hmm. Coming to a head all the Yeah, time. I guess so, yeah. So now let's fast forward to today. You just came off of Paris Fashion Week for men's. I feel like there's been a lot of conversation over the past few years. I mean, obviously about the need and the role of fashion week and the fashion shows in general. But even for men's, you know, you see a lot of designers just combining the men's and women's shows into one event. Uh, What was the mood like? Do you feel like they like, is that still an event that you feel is thriving? Um, How did you, how do you feel coming off of that in terms of the need for a separate men's week? Yeah, I've got to say um, sort of thriving probably wouldn't do it justice. Mm. Um, I think there's a huge, there's, there was a lot of conversation around, um, you know, designers sort of going down the uh, see now, buy now mm-hmm. track um, a few seasons back. Um, and then, you know, quite right, there were a number of um, major designers that combined uh, their men's and women's shows. Um, and predominantly, um, or at least sort of thinking about it, a lot of those were caring mm-hmm. brands. Interesting. Um and it seems like there's, um, you know, the, the caring business is still doing, you know, phenomenally well. Um, and that seemingly has worked, you know, phenomenally well for that business model. I think what's interesting is that LVMH have taken completely different skew on it. Um, you know, they've sort of, now that Kim Jones is um, heading up the Dior men's business, mm-hmm. you've got Virgil Abloh at Louis Vuitton, and you've got um, Eddie Semaine showing sort of Celine men's as a standalone show mm-hmm. for the first time. And of course, those are, are three fairly sort of punchy major right. um, <laughs> brands. Um, and that, I think, has had a, um, a halo effect, as well as having a number of like really interesting... Um, like there's a, there's a, a couple of brands that are showing kind of men's and women's together, but during um, the men's week. Um, mm-hmm. Like on Sunday night, just before Celine was the Alix show, uh, Matthew Williams's line. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know he shows both genders together, but during men's, and that was a, uh, a particular sort of favourite of yeah. mine. So there was a lot going on um, during sort of Paris Fashion Week across both shows and showroom appointments, and it felt like a super super exciting um, sort of week. Um, you know, and I've got like even Amiri, um, the LA based brand, you know, they show mm-hmm. during men's and that was a, a, a catwalk of, of men's and women's products. So I, I think it's super interesting. Yeah. So it seems like on one hand, you could look at all of that that's happening at once as like, oh, it's chaos. Like everyone's kind of throwing something at the wall to see what works. And there's no one like streamlined flow to these events anymore because you have all these designers trying their own personal um, or like house strategies. So how do you kind of look at it from like the optimistic view? Like, okay, there's one he could be like, oh, God, this is this is like too much. It's, you know, all scattered. But from your perspective, uh, like that you're coming from from Nordstrom, how do you sort of say like, oh, this is actually exciting. This is a good thing. I guess um, to the the point before about the speed at which the um, customers are sort of. Uh, finding out about all of this information. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like before in the very static, you know, two fashion weeks um, a year, at least from a men's perspective. Um, and then those images would get released and some people would see them on like what used to be style.com or now like Vogue Runway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a certain, I guess because there wasn't so much, anyone could access those websites, but you know, you kind of wonder how many sort of uh, of the general fashion consuming population really did or how much they relied on seeing it in stores and, mm-hmm. and through like printed medium. And then when the campaigns came out and then they were in the main books of, of magazines. 
I guess now you're right. There's a there's so much more going on, but you kind of need that because there's the speed at which people are finding out mm -hmm. about this product um, and what sort of the brands and designers are putting out there is is so much quicker that you need more to sustain both the um, the kind of keep the the wheel turning. Right. Um, so more more the pace of content means that you need more content to feed it. Exactly. Does that mean, do you think that this, it could be heading towards like a breaking point though, if there's just like more and more and people are consuming things faster and faster? Well, I, I guess um, one of the, I always feel a little bit like because of the ever evolving sort of state of fashion, mm -hmm. um, there's always a kind of a conversation about like how much change there is and what does that change mean? But the thing for me is that it's, it's always changing. Right. You know, it's never static. It's kind of why I love it so right. much. Like fashion was never staying the same for a year, like at the time. No, and as such, you know, all that for me, that's all, all that's really changing is the, the speed at which things are moving. Um, but also that's coalescing with the number of people that are interested in it because it's much easier to get the information now mm -hmm. through the internet or Instagram or any other social media platform. Right. So the speed is changing. The consumers that are... Um, sort of consuming that information or the customers that are consuming that information, um, that's all happening at a much quicker pace. But at the same time, there are far more people interested in it. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's kind of balancing itself out. Yeah. It also makes it a particularly exciting time to be in the men's industry specifically, although I think this is you know completely true of, of the fashion industry at large. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the men's like luxury fashion customer specifically from your view like who who is it because it's it i think men's is extra interesting because you have this influence of, of streetwear in high fashion and to your point just the number of people who are participating in it seems to just be increasing and the type of fashion consumer is changing how would you describe like today's men's fashion customer i guess it's it's super varied and quite hard to put a pin on you know any kind of individual groups i guess it's about sort of cultural icons um, are super, super important, mm -hmm. um, be that from kind of music scene or be that from um, sports scene. And I think that's partly uh, why the range of people interested in it has gotten much, much broader. Right. Um, because there's kind of these like cultural significant leaders of sorts um, that they themselves are expressing an interest in fashion. So then you've got um, a lot of guys that look up to, it might be, you know, their particular fans of that guy's music right. or they're particularly fans of sports stars and um you know they've got like kind of nba players mm -hmm. kind of walking from coach to the court and that's like its own, own runway of sorts now um and i think that's all sort of just validating people's interest in it at the same time i think you've still got the guys that are either super into product and style um those real kind of like menswear sort of nerdy geek type guys that are super into um a specific gene a specific weight of denim or a specific construction of a jacket mm -hmm. um that whole sort of scene still exists um and then there's also the the more kind of avant-garde fashion designer kind of element of it i think there's just there's lots of different avenues right. i think i guess uh more than ever um to one degree or another sort of success in um, again, I, I sort of always talk to men's, but I think it's fashion in general. It feels like it's as much about the marketing and positioning and how you kind of acquire and talk to a different customer base mm -hmm. as it is about the specific product. Mm -hmm. 
We'll be right back. TexWorld USA is a must-attend international trade show featuring a wide range of fabrics, trims, and accessories. Co-located with Apparel Sourcing USA, TexWorld is the only event on the East Coast devoted to sourcing finished apparel garments and accessories and is a hub for education and resources for the fashion industry. This edition's spotlight is on sustainability. Attendees won't want to miss Fashion Sustain, a one-day conference on sustainable practices, along with the popular educational series. Set for the Javits Convention Center, secure your badge for three days of sourcing, networking, and learning on July 22nd through the 24th of 2019. Register today at texworldusa.com. That's T-E-X-W-O-R-L-D-U-S-A.com. Now back to the episode. There's a lot more entry points today, like to your point. And so when you take all of that into consideration, just the fact that there's going to be more people who have you know, varied ways into the fashion industry just participating um, in the conversation and, and with these brands, what does that mean for your role? I mean, I, mean, I think, you know, back... In 2006, if you are, you know, a head of fashion at a department store, you're basically like the the person in between all of these brands and designers and the and the end consumer, along with you know the the publications, the print magazines at the time. And so now it's like, how, what do you what do you, you're more like in the in the curator role to be like, okay, here's all this noise, and I'm going to tell you if you are gravitating, you know, in this in this industry, yeah. how to sift through it. I guess retailers as gatekeepers um, doesn't necessarily exist as a, a notion anymore. Right. Um, I think I guess that's the biggest shift um, with the sort of the boom of the internet is that a brand can directly connect with a customer base and develop a customer base. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas previously, you know, you would it was a very big barrier, a very high barrier to entry um, because you'd have to. It wasn't easy to create your own retail network so and that was sort of the real importance of a wholesale network is Mm -hmm. just getting your product in front of customers now by no means is it necessarily easy to create a physical retail network right now but ultimately you know if you've got an instagram you could be selling product directly over direct message as a brand um and there's i think that's one of the super interesting things that's happened through like the number of u.s designers that are super savvy in terms of the marketing proposition and really building um, a brand name and cachet through that and kind of a couple of obvious names come to mind Mm -hmm. Virgil Abloh being one Matthew Mm -hmm. Williams being another Jerry Lorenzo being another Mike Amiri um, to some extent being another and you know that list goes on right Right. Um, Ruigi does Rue there's you know there's a a number of different names in that space Um, to your point about what does that mean for us as a retailer, I think sort of partnerships with brands in sort of communicating a brand message and and, and telling a story around product um, is kind of more important than ever. Um, one of the things within the men's fashion um, kind of remit at Nordstrom that I look after is uh, this thing called New Concepts, mm. um, which is really our platform to tell interesting brand and product stories. And that's very much kind of... Um, I was introduced by uh, Jeffrey Kalinsky of Jeffrey's to Pete Nordstrom, um, which is kind of how I got my job. And we spoke for a while uh, about what a role might look like. Um, and there was kind of a lot of core business stuff in that. And one of the things was was new concepts. And really, it was the premise of coming from Mr. Porter, uh, where the 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 
the whole premise of the Mr. Porter business is that it's a shoppable magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, when Natalie Massenet founded Net-A-Porter, that was very much the inception point, and, and Mr. Porter mirrored that. Um, so the idea of the content is really king there, and um, they're kind of world class in from a digital space, taking a brand story and and representing that to a, a customer base. Right. One of the things I was really interested in is how do you do that in a department store setting um, and not just a department store setting in an omni-channel play, really. Mm-hmm. So how do you get how, how do you communicate an idea through a physical space, um, sort of elevate that and entice customers into the space and then communicate on that level? But also, how do you marry that to a, a digital uh, content play? Um, and that's really what we're working on within new concepts. Mm-hmm. So it's thinking about who are the brands and designers that we want to showcase because they fit into this specific, you know, story or narrative that you know we think the customer would be interested in right now, and then on top of that, how do we make sure it's across touch points? Yeah, I think there's um, there's sometimes within this where we're coming up with our own concept and very much doing what you just mentioned. So mm-hmm. the first concept that we launched was something called Out Cold, where we brought together twenty performance outdoor wet weather brands because we were essentially, you know, January is awful in you know many cities in the country new yes. york uh definitely being one of those yep. um and we wanted a way to present sort of very stylish and very fashionable functional product mm-hmm. um so it was very much solution based um whereas the next concept that we're about to launch um and by the time this goes live we'll have launched mm-hmm. um is a partnership with, um, it's called Union and Company, um, and it's with Chris Gibbs, who owns the um, LA streetwear designer wear store um, Union. Um, mm. They have a store in LA, they have a store in Tokyo and a, and a website. Um, and really that was Chris and I kind of talking about if Union were to have physical spaces in a Nordstrom, what would that look like? What brands would be involved? And how could we tell a union story through a new concepts uh, lens? So sometimes we're coming up with our own concept and bringing in brands through that. Sometimes we're sort of working with a specific um, viewpoint and then working out ways to communicate that story. And then sometimes we're working with one singular brand. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, our second concept was uh, with Dior. Um, and we sort of custom designed two spaces in New York and Seattle. Um, to tell the Spring 19 cause. Um, yeah, Kim Jones commissioned the artist cause to reinterpret a number of the house um, emblems. Mm. Um, and we kind of took that as a premise and built a space around it. So there's lots of different things um, that we're doing in New Concepts and we're coming at it from lots of different angles. Right, so, so how much of your job is just rethinking the relationship between a designer brand and a retailer like Nordstrom because you know like like you said earlier that that gatekeeper role doesn't exist anymore brands can sell a lot of different ways and so is it more of like a conversation and a partnership to say like okay here's here's what we can do and this will be an attraction for all of our customers and just thinking on a deeper level on, on what that relationship is um, if I'm honest, I'd say single-handedly, that's my favorite part about what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's being able to partner with people in um, a far deeper way than it being a transactional relationship. Um, for me, that's the whole premise of almost kind of why I love this industry, is that you can build um, really interesting sort of interpersonal but also intercompany relationships when you understand what... You know, what's going to be great for your partner and then what's going to be great for you out of that and really understanding um, those kind of like core deliverables of any specific um, relationship 
I think it really allows you to to hopefully do some really interesting and amazing things, but very much to your point about kind of breaking down those traditional walls and understanding, actually, if we think or thought about this in a in a much more organic sort of grassroots way of, hey, this is important for you and this is important for me and how can we champion those two ideas and build upon that? That's the thing that I really like the most about this industry right. and, and what's happening right now in, in men's. Because that's like the retailer's new competitive, competitive advantage because you can say, okay, a lot of these brands, even if they are selling direct, eventually I think we're seeing that they will want to have a retail partnership at some point because of that reach. Yeah, you know, we've got 120 stores um, Mm -hmm. across the country and uh, a fairly sizable digital um, footprint as well. Um, So we have our own, you know, Nordstrom's been going for um, over 100 years. um, And that in itself comes with very i guess one of the things that one of the reasons that i wanted to join nordstrom or was so um excited when i met pete and kind of super interested by the business is it has this sort of positioning in the u.s uh retail landscape that Mm. you know i'm I'm british in Mm. case my accent (laughs) didn't give that away and um there's a couple of retailers in the uk that have the kind of standing but the uk is a much smaller place so you know by virtue of that Mm -hmm. It doesn't quite scale, you know, because basically everyone that I spoke to about Nordstrom, um, you know, before I joined and um, my wife's extended family are, are from the US. So we kind of have um, that kind of relationship where I can talk to a number of different people, both industry and, and completely non-industry. Mm-hmm. Everyone always has a really interesting um, and a very nice story of the Nordstrom business. And I found that super compelling and super interesting. Um so where I was going with that is I think when um, a retailer like Nordstrom has a um, has its own kind of ready-baked uh, customer base because we've been mm-hmm. working for so long um, and such a big part of our uh, proposition in the market is um, kind of building a relationship with our customers. Mm-hmm. Um, even if a brand, like you say, builds its own direct-to-consumer business, we're probably talking to a different customer, maybe not entirely, um, but oftentimes, you know, there'll be a customer segment that shops just direct to consumer, uh, just from the brand directly. Um, there'll be a customer segment that just shops within a specific store because they really respond to that store. They have done for a long time. Maybe their family always shopped with that store. And then there's kind of there'll always be overlap and crossover. Right. Um, I think there's always, ultimately, from a brand's perspective, I think you really want to try and get in front of as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's almost like before to that sort of retailers used to be the gatekeeper perspective because it was the only way to do that. Um, Then we kind of, I guess, in the like early 2010s went through a a lot of when when that whole direct to consumer thing really started um, bubbling up. It was almost like this conversation that brands didn't need the retailers anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like anything, that pendulum has kind of settled down a bit. And people are really understanding there's benefit in both Mm -hmm. you know and I think there's always space for both there's customers that like multi-brand retail and there's customers that like direct to consumer Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot with our sort of overall service proposition um, is that we try and serve customers in any way which they want Um, we don't try and be prescriptive in terms of you can only shop in a store you can Mm -hmm. only shop online Um, because I think customers really just want to interact with a business or a brand however they want to interact 
with a business or right. brand, be it you know from their phone or from the website or go into the store or spend time with a personal stylist. Um, and it doesn't. It's not like if you're a website shopper, you're only ever a website shopper, mm-hmm. or if you're a physical store shopper, you're only ever a physical store shopper. I think even with a you know a single customer, you do lots of different things. Mm-hmm. I definitely know I do. Right, exactly, and and, and meeting that wherever the customer wants to be at that specific time and day is is what retailers are trying to figure out right now. And then at the same time, it's not about, you know, cutting the retailers out altogether or brands going on their own. And it's about that, that those smarter relationships and partnerships. It seems that's where it's going. Um, so we talked about your the favorite part of your job. What's what's your least favorite part? Oh, I, I don't have a least favorite part. No. No. <laughs> um, do you know what the... Uh, Another favorite part of my job is the travel, Mm. Um, mostly because um, it's not necessarily the travel itself. It's more when you are traveling, it's when you're seeing all of the product, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's kind of like the real exciting bit. At the same time, I've got sort of, you know, I'm I'm married and I've got two kids at home Mm. um, who are under three. Um, So at the same time, the travel is single handedly the hardest part of the job. Right. Um, Where are you going next? And actually, I'm I'm around we, we launch our union concept on July 11th. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in eight stores across the country, um, plus online. Um, but I'm in New York for the launch of that on the 11th. So. At the men's store. At the men's store. So yeah. now correct me if I'm wrong. Is that the first standalone men's store? Mm, it is, yeah. So how has that played out? That opened what, last year? Yeah, it opened last April. Um, and then I joined the business in, in June. Okay. Um, it's been great. I think there's been a, um, a huge amount of learnings from our perspective, in just having, you know, a standalone men's store, um, mostly insofar as it's the first time we've ever had a standalone men's store. Mm-hmm. So you just naturally find out a lot because you're you're trying a new um, thing in itself. The It's also our first full-line sort of Nordstrom store of any description mm-hmm. in the city. Right. Um, so there's a lot, I guess, um, of learning. A lot of learnings. Yeah, across <laughs> the board. It's been super interesting. We're super happy. You know, our in terms of the remit that I look after across men's fashion and new concepts, um, it's been great. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, before I let you go, in terms of I, I just you know just want to harp back on like how the place that men's fashion is in right now because we have all of these influences and all these like almost like cohorts like popping up like you said who maybe they're more traditional or maybe it's the streetwear style guy. Um, where is this all? Where's this all headed? What's your hottest men's fashion take right now? Do you think that we're going to head back towards this like formalization because it's gone so casual? Um, where do, what happens to all the hype beasts next? Where is this all going? They're all going to wear three piece suits, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if if the fashion weeks, um, you know, having just done uh, the pity show in Florence, uh, mm-hmm. then went to Milan, then did um, Paris, um, so that's kind of you know. I've been traveling for two and a bit weeks. Yeah, There's definitely um, this broader conversation, or at least there's a lot of suits on runway. I was about to say like the return of the suit, mm. um, and everyone's kind of talking about that. Um, seems a bit funny because I am sat here wearing a suit, and yeah. you know, it's, it's been a while since. I'm wearing suits quite regularly at the moment, but it's been a while since I've done that. Right, now um, it's like a, a statement. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that's kind of, that's one of those things that's happened, you know, over the years. Like I remember... Um, I remember in the around like 2010, 2011, Raph Simmons, um, who 
you know, for a lot of the streetwear designers now, the mm-hmm. early RAF collections, like the early 2000s collections, were really like the blueprint of where um, streetwear is not in totality, but at least, you know, in certain parts of streetwear. Yeah. It's, it's kind of almost like his early 2000s collections were the blueprint of, of that whole um, aesthetic for now. And I remember in like 2010, 2011, RAF putting out, um, at least in the showrooms, it was represented in the runway, but definitely in the showrooms, um, he felt like like formal suits and formal shirts was almost like the punk attitude of, mm. of that time because everyone was just wearing T-shirts and jeans. And of course, another designer that's both done that and talked about that a lot, admittedly in his own terms, was Tom Brown. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in terms of actually when T-shirts and jeans are the de facto uniform, right. um, a suit becomes a novelty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, for... For many years in the men's space, it was the exact opposite, right? Mm. Like in the 50s, of course, the, the suit was the, the, the uniform of right. the year. Um, to answer specifically of, of, of what happens, I think there was still, it's always a, a pendulum swing. And I think it's about um, sort of graduation and, and um, or a graduating evolution rather than necessarily like a hard sort of left or right turn. Mm-hmm. Um, there was still a lot of logos. There was still a lot of sportswear. Um I think for me, the interesting thing was the designers are, it was almost like everyone was kind of conscious that streetwear had to go somewhere. Right. Um, and like, I guess the opposing opposite is tailoring, mm-hmm. which is kind of why everyone was talking about the return of the suit. Uh-huh. Um, but it isn't in the extremes of that. You know, everyone's thinking about, okay, well, if we were going to get guys back into a cleaner image because that feels like where they're going to go after everything being um, so logoed or, or so, um, I guess, specific to the, the streetwear aesthetic. And that, mm. of course, is a conversation that's been around for a long time. Right. Um, really, it felt like designers were thinking about that in real terms. Mm. They weren't showing three-piece, really traditional English Savile Row tailoring. No. They were selling un- showing unconstructed jackets and mixture max tailoring and really interesting colour. Um, I think that was one of the biggest takeaways for me from mm. from Paris was um, and, and Pity um, was really interesting play but in wearable color uh lots of whites and blues and pinks and and pastels and lavenders and and it all felt quite um fresh and spring right and wearable for a guy right nice all right well thank you so much sam for your thoughts i really really enjoyed it thank you we hope you enjoyed the episode a special thanks to gianna cappadona the producer of this podcast as a thank you for listening we're passing along a limited time introductory offer on a three-month subscription to glossy plus glossy plus members access unlimited stories exclusive research and more join today for just 49 dollars. that's 80 dollars off by entering the code intro at checkout at glossy.co slash subscribe and as always be sure to subscribe on itunes google play stitcher and anchor fm and leave us any feedback you have